reading today is from Mark 6, 1 through 30. Mark 6, 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And then he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus 
and told him all that they had done and taught. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. I hope you have some great Fourth uh, of July plans for this coming up week and are able to uh, spend some time with friends and family. If you're new here to Bethany Church, we've been going on a, a journey through the Gospel of Mark. We've been walking our way through the Gospel this spring and, and into summer, uh, and we've been thinking about what it would be like to go as traveling companions, to walk alongside Jesus in this fast-paced action-packed gospel account of Jesus, the suffering servant. It's quite a reading today, wasn't it? It's a pretty fascinating story we're going to get into today. Um, uh, Sad, you might even say, as you think of John the Baptist and his state. But we're going to look today at some of the risk, as you've obviously heard, of being involved with being associated with Jesus Christ. With joining Him as a disciple on mission. Remember, he's been working alongside of his disciples from the beginning of Mark. Remember, he called his disciples in chapters 1 and 2. He had commissioned them in chapter 3, and remember, he called them his true family, his disciples. Chapter 4, he teaches them parables and even rebukes them for misplaced faith in that storm on the sea. Chapter 5, we saw those stories of faith in Jairus' and Jairus, whose daughter had died, and the woman, woman who had been bleeding for years. And now we come to chapter 6. And now Mark places the beheading of John the Baptist right in the middle of the disciples being sent out two by two on their first mission and returning in verse 30. It's curious. Did you notice it there? The disciples are sent out. And then we get this story of John the Baptist. And then verse 30, the Anna finished, which says, well, then the disciples came back. He breaks it up really curiously there. There's a reason. Mark wants you and I to see that we, are, that we too are to join Jesus and follow Him on His mission to save and to restore a sinful humanity through His death on the cross and resurrection. But it will be a mission that costs us. It will be a life as a disciple that will cost In our passage today, we're going to see that it may cost some even the ultimate price. John the Baptist was beheaded. This is literal now. His death clearly shows. This morning, we're going to see that some are offended at Jesus, some reject Jesus, and some may even seek to destroy Jesus and his followers. But we follow a path that he has taken as well. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what we're going to see this morning. It's a path that he has taken as well. We follow in Jesus' footsteps as a disciple. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it there. Get it ready. Uh, Grab your Bibles and have those open, whether it's a smartphone or a tablet or your book there. As we look at John 6, we're going to look at three settings today. Three settings to watch the response to Jesus and his disciples. And we're going to follow up each setting with a a follow-up question. Our first setting is this. It's in Jesus' hometown in Nazareth in verses 1 to 6. As we'll see, the hometown crowd goes from amazement to offense to disbelief. The hometown crowd goes from amazement to offense to disbelief. You would think that if Jesus was going to have success anywhere, it'd be where? 
his, his, his hometown. His hometown. You, know, you think about it, don't we always root for the hometown team? We do. We root for the hometown team. This week, as, as, um, as the Beavers won the College World Series, which is amazing, I don't know if I've ever seen a comeback like that, I'm sure there were Ducks fans who were rooting. Why? It's hometown. It's the hometown boys. Who wouldn't root for the hometown boys? Well, as Jesus heads into Nazareth, his hometown, they're not rooting for him. <laughs> they're very familiar with him. They know him. He's from their town. But their familiarity with him breeds contempt. It breeds a contempt. You see how their attitude changes. It goes from amazement at his teachings in verse 2. They start kind of blown away. Wow, Jesus, you're teaching, your wisdom, but how quickly it turns to offense by verse 3. And then to Jesus in verse 6, marveling at their, at their disbelief. Just marveling by the end of verse 6, like, really? This is the state of your heart? This is the dis- level of disbelief in those six verses there. And they show their contempt to him, how? By asking these questions. Did you hear those questions in there? They ask those questions. Where, where is this coming from? Uh, how did he get this kind of, kind of wisdom? I saw him grow up. I saw him as a baby. We saw him grow up around here. How's he doing these miracles? He's a carpenter, not a magician. You know, he may be able to set a crossbeam, but cast out demons? Come on. They have these questions for him. You get the sense that they feel like they've got Jesus pegged. We got him figured out. We know who he is. We, we got this Jesus guy. And I bet as they kept talking and, and talking amongst themselves, they, they, they worked themselves up into this contempt for this local uh, hometown boy. Isn't this just Mary's son? The final question. In those days, you'd be recognized by your father's name even if he was dead, as Joseph probably was by this point. So what were they doing? They were calling him an illegitimate son and his mother a whore. That's how, that's how drastic that last question was. And you think about that. As a human being, that would hurt to go back home and to find that their backs had been turned and the door had been closed and there's no warm meal or no warm uh, meal on the table. No food? That's what he's experiencing. Because they weren't really actually interested in getting real answers to those questions. They just wanted to really confirm their own skeptical suspicions. God's anointed cannot come from Nazareth. This is a scandal. It's almost as if they're speaking the words of uh, Nathaniel the Apostle when he was called when he said, can anything good come from, remember where? Nazareth? It's almost like they're saying that. Jesus understands what's happening and he responds in verse 4. Look with me there. He says, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In his own household. Jesus responds. It's the first time Mark uses the word prophet that it's used for Jesus. He says, I'm like a prophet in a hometown who has no honor. So what's Mark doing? As he uses prophet the first time here, he, he's setting us up to see a path, the path that Jesus will walk. It's the path that all the Old Testament prophets walked, those who spoke the truth for Jesus. 
What was their life like? They were dismissed. They were held in contempt when they spoke the truth. They were rejected by the people of God for speaking for God, like the Old Testament prophets. And many of them faced martyrdom and death, just like John the Baptist is going to face in a moment. And Jesus' rejection by his hometown, Mark is setting up for us, it foreshadows his ultimate rejection that's coming. The absolute rejection that's coming by his nation at the cross. It's the way of the cross. So let's think about us then. If we're too called to follow this Jesus on mission, if you're called to follow him as a disciple, this Jesus we speak of that's so misunderstood and judged by appearances, ah, he's just a Nazarite, he's just a carpenter, it means that you and I will be misunderstood at times too. If you speak for him, if you bear his name, you will at times be misunderstood too. Judged by appearances. You know, ah, that story of Jesus, it's been around forever. You know, what has he done lately? It's a couple thousand years. I haven't seen him. He hasn't come back. I mean, what's so great about Jesus? All the people, that are, the things they've done in his name? Come on. People feel, too, and maybe you do today, that you've got Jesus pegged. You've got his followers pegged. You, you know them. You've got, you've got their number. How about us? Here's our question. When we come to Jesus, if you're a follower now, are you amazed? Or maybe a little offended at the words of Jesus? Or do you believe? Do you believe today? That's our question. What's your response to him? Are you amazed, offended, or indifferent? Is it too hard for you today to get past the scandal? The scandal of God in flesh, poor and humble, dying on a cross. You know, that was God's elaborate plan. Great plan, God. Well, you have to actually get past the scandal before your eyes of faith will ever see him as he truly is. You've got to work through the scandal. It's good if you're seeing it today in yourself. You've got to work through that before your eyes will ever embrace him in true faith. Or maybe we're like the hometown folk today who you've heard all the stories of Jesus. You're so familiar with him. You become familiar with so much with him that you're almost kind of lulled to sleep towards the deep demands he actually wants on your life. Because you've heard it all before. I know, you know, incarnation, grace, resurrection, faith alone, I got it. I've heard it a million times. As we grow in familiarity, Bethany Church, with Jesus and his gospel, may we never, never lose our awe, our wonder, and what it means to be saved. Uh, to, 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 to know that it's grace alone, faith alone. May we never lose our zeal to live for Jesus. And so we follow him too on this road of rejection. Why? Because he's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth everything. And Jesus, as we see in our story, he, he, he moves on. He passes on from Nazareth and moves away because their disbelief that they had that he's amazed at, it it ties Christ's hands in a way. 
It ties his hands, as one commentator said that I read. His healing, his power, and his miracles in Nazareth, they cease. He stops. Now, it says in verse 5, he could do no mighty work there. It's not because he couldn't. He's all-powerful. He's all-powerful. And there's places in the Bible where miracles happen and there's, there's a lack of faith there on those that are blessed by the miracle. It's not that he couldn't. It's that he wouldn't. Look at this quote from Ken Hughes. He says, Unbelief robs the church of its power. We can add new programs until we do not have enough hours in the day to administrate them or enough bulletin inserts to advertise them. But without a believing expectancy in Christ and His power, nothing will come of it. Nothing. If we want to please God to know His pleasure and power, we must believe that God revealed in the Old and New Testament exists and that He acts equitably on behalf of His children. Bethany Church, do we believe this? That God works through real belief. He works through those moments of trust, of faith, when we act for Him, when it seems foolish even. As you look at maybe John the Baptist today and think, unbelievable. Christ was amazed by the faith He saw in people and just as amazed when He saw their unbelief. Let's be a church that amazes Him with our belief. Let's be that kind of church that amazes Him with our belief. So Christ and the disciples, they move on because of their disbelief. They move on to our second setting. It's the sending of the disciples on their first mission. As they go out two by two, he sends them out, and Jesus prepares them in these verses well. Why does he prepare them? Here's why. It's our second uh, setting. Many on the road of mission may reject the kingdom call. Many will reject the kingdom call. So Jesus gets his disciples ready. He has been training them. We've seen it in the first five chapters of Mark. And now he gives them, uh, you might, some packing instructions. Here's your packing list. Pack light, guys, is what he says to them. Pack light. He sends them out to heal and to love people and pray for them and, and ultimately to give them the kingdom call to repent. To repent of sin to turn from sin and embrace the Savior. He also tells them, guys, no room upgrades. No room upgrades. How many of you have gone to, uh, you go to a hotel and you just love to take that chance? Like, hey, I've been here a lot. Uh, we've stayed here so many times. Do you guys have any chance to have any um, free room upgrades that available? Uh, I'm just wondering, do you have any of those? Uh, my wife's great at that. She's a great negotiator. She loves to do that. How many of you have done that? But Jesus says, hey guys, when you enter a house, stay there. Stay there I I until you leave that town. Don't go on to a better residence. If somebody comes along and says, hey, I know you're staying there, but come over here and stay in, in this, this house. We've got a little better accommodations for you. Why? Hey, Jesus, like, we'll, we'll be traveling. It'll be nice. We're going to be on the road for you. You know, we will give us a, an upgraded, it'd be nice to have an upgraded king bed. Let, let, us, let us do that. I mean, Jesus, you wouldn't have expected your parents to stay in that stable. You would have upgraded their room if you were a little older, right? Wait, wait, come on, Jesus. Let us upgrade. Why does he do that? Why does he say pack light and don't seek the best accommodations? 
Two, two reasons. Here's the first one. The mission wasn't about them. The mission actually wasn't about them. The mission wasn't about their comfort. God would take care of them. He would take care of them. But the mission was ultimately about Jesus. And so he wanted them to travel light so that as they traveled light, they would have to depend on him when they were out on the road. They went out as mouthpieces for him. Disciples went out to speak for Jesus. They were to take out a message that would impact people in real, tangible ways. They were going out to speak for him. A message that would bring love. A message that would bring life. A message that would bring forgiveness. They spoke for Jesus. It wasn't about them. So he says, travel light. It's the same as our mission today. It's ultimately not about us. It's shocking, I know. (laughs) Not popular to say. It's ultimately not about us. But here's the question. Do you believe that living for Him is actually true living, even if it costs you, and actually can be your greatest joy to go out on the road for Him, to live on mission for Him, even if He asks you to give up something or it costs something. Do we believe that? Jesus does. Here's what He said in Matthew 10. You'll see it here. Matthew 10, 39. He said, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's blessing in giving up stuff for Jesus. Being willing to, to count the cost and live for Him. Paul believed it too. Here's what he said in Philippians. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He went on, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul felt that. He knew that. Do you believe that? And Paul's essentially saying, I'll go through anything as long as Christ is on the other side. I'll go through anything. I'll lose anything as long as Jesus is on the other side. If he's not, it's not worth it. It's not worth it if he's not on the other side. It's not worth it. But Paul says, if he's on the other side, it's worth it. Do you believe that today as Jesus calls? Well, here's one more way to put it. Piper has this great phrase. God is most glorified in us. You can go on. It was that. There we go. When we are most satisfied in him. You think, well, giving things up, that sounds, on this mission, this life of mission, that sounds not pleasant. That sounds painful. That sounds like a, uh, a burden. I love how he puts it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, Go ahead and live for pleasure. What? What? Because the greatest pleasure is actually found in living for Him. That's what Piper's saying. Being used by Him. Serving Him. That's the first reason. It's not about us. It's about Him. Here's the second reason he said pack light and don't upgrade your accommodations. Here's why. There was an urgency to their mission that kingdom call for people to repent. There was an urgency as he sent those disciples out. There's still an urgency today. Time will end. 
there's no repentance after death. There's no repentance after Jesus Christ returns. And so it was urgent. Jesus said, hey, if they don't hear you, if you share the message, call them to repentance and they don't hear you, he says, move on. He tells them, he says, move on. Go somewhere else with the message then. I have people somewhere else who will respond. He tells them even, shake the dust off your feet, off your sandals. Brush it off. Shake it off. It would have served as one last final warning as the apostles would have walked out of a house or out of a village. Just one last warning to them. Repent. Believe. We're getting ready to leave. We're, we're, we're heading out. The message is leaving. Please consider it one more time as they would wipe the dust off their feet. There was an urgency. And they went out because it wasn't their miss mission. He was the sender and time would end. It was urgent. And so it raises our question, do we see, do you feel, do you acknowledge there's an urgent need today to call people to repentance with tangible love? It's our follow-up question there in our second setting. Do we see the urgent need to call people to repentance with tangible love? Like the apostles, we're sent. To be a disciple is to be a, a, a sent one. Someone who's following Jesus. And I ask us, and we think, you know, maybe it's, is that even on our radar today? Or on your radar? That you and I, we're mouthpieces for Jesus. You can share His name. You too can call people to repent and believe in the Savior. You can do that. You don't have to have a seminary degree to even do that, believe it or not. That's good news. You just have to know about Christ and know Him personally to share it. Maybe God's asking you to travel a bit lighter like He did His apostles so that now you can depend on Him as you live as a disciple. Maybe you've lost something recently and you don't know how to process that lost. Maybe God has even taken something from you that you desperately relied upon. He's saying, trust me as you walk. Trust me as you go. I've always asked my disciples to travel lightly because I want them to trust in me. Maybe for the first time God is challenging you this morning. Do I see myself? Could I be a mouthpiece for Jesus Christ? Could I speak for Him? Am I willing to, to speak for one whom they might reject? Am I willing to tie myself to that name? Or maybe that's the first time even today God is waking up by saying, maybe your lack of desire to ask others to repent and follow Jesus may be pointing you to your need of Him for the very first time this morning. Don't let that pass. May He give us the belief, unlike the town of Nazareth, to go out on our own roads, to share with the lost. May He give us a heart for the lost. Well, the disciples do. They go out and they return in verse 30. Look at it there. The apostles returned to Jesus and they told Him, they shared with Him all that they had done and taught. But sandwiched in between that second setting is our third. It's this kind of strange, shocking story about the man who stood for truth when it cost him his life. 
It's dramatic. It's supposed to be. It's a shocking story. It's a story that has been recounted, retold, and I even was online this week looking, and there's all kinds of paintings from all eras from the church history forward of this moment, of John's head on a platter. You can find paintings from the Renaissance all throughout history because this story has an impact. It's a dramatic story. And I think one of the powerful effects that Mark is intending by inserting it, why does he do this? Right in the middle of the disciples' first mission, they're sending and they're coming back, is to say that to follow Jesus might mean taking a risk. Look at John, right in the middle of the disciples being sent and coming back. It might mean facing rejection. It might mean facing persecution. It might mean facing death. Disciples, here's John's story right in the middle of your own. I think that's what Mark's doing. John the Baptist is bold. We know that as he started the book and he's at the beginning of all the Gospels. He's a bold man. He eats locusts. <laughs> he's a strange guy. He's an interesting guy. Wears hairy clothing. and He's just an interesting guy. He's bold. He's courageous, though, like almost no one else in the Bible. John calls out a political leader, King Herod, for stealing and marrying his brother's wife, who, by the way, was also his niece. Let that sink in. <laughs> He's his brother's wife, but also the daughter of one of his other brothers. Strange. Herod visits his brother Philip. Herod Antipas is our Herod in our story. But he, he visits his brother Philip, another leader, and he steals his wife, Herodias. He steals his brother's wife, who is one of his other brother's daughters. And John calls him out. John calls him out. And here's why. This has always been the role of God's people, to be a prophetic voice. We have the truth. And John is just living into his role as a disciple. Really. He's, he's just a, another disciple. The call has always been for God's people to be that prophetic voice. Even if it's scary. Even if it costs us. To be an extension of God's voice. Graciously, lovingly, humbly, Calling sin, sin. How do we call people to repentance? How were you called to repentance? Without knowing that something was sin. Even kings. Even kings here with Herod. Why? Because nobody is above God's law. Nobody. You may have noticed, but the word evangelical has been in the news a lot lately. Have you seen it? It's been in the news a lot. It's, that, it's tied right to our, our, our association of churches, the evangelical free church. That word has been in the news a lot. Now, a lot of that coverage is skewed at, at best <laughs> as they speak of evangelicals. As they speak of us in the news, it's daily. You look daily, uh, you go to 10 different news sites, you will find that word evangelical all 
over the place. It's some of it skewed at best. At worst, it's flat-out lies. It's the reality. But there are some areas you do have to give some credit to some of the media. They have rightly, I think, pointed out some of the hypocrisy in some really high-profile, even, you would say, evangelical leaders who in other times, maybe, and in other administrations would not give so many passes on moral things. I think they have. As they've exchanged their true calling, as John had it to be a prophetic voice, they've exchanged that true calling for a desperate grab at power in another kingdom. Yes, we love that kingdom. We love our nation. We, lo- we should love and pray for our leaders, but we serve a kingdom, as John the Baptist did, as he's showing us, that supersedes that, that's above it. And so John takes the risk, and it costs him. There's an absolute parallel here. This isn't a stretch. This is an absolute parallel here, as John speaks to Herod. That's what John is doing. He's standing for the truth when it will cost him. He's standing for the truth when it will cost him. Now, Herod, you may think, well, he's talking to Herod because Herod is a Jew and John is a Jew. And, you know, why would he speak God's morals to anybody else? Herod was not a practicing Jew. He, was, in fact, was a Samaritan. He was a mixture. He was not a practicing Jew. And he wasn't a Christian. Herod was not a Christ follower. Yet John warns him of his actions. That's the prophetic voice. He speaks from that prophetic sphere into the political sphere. That's what he does. Because this is the mission that God's called him on. And this mission is spoken everywhere. That's what he's doing. What could cause a man, what could cause John to stand for the truth, knowing it could cost him his freedom and possibly his life? He believes. He believes so deep down inside of him, deep down to the very core of who he is in his bones, he believes the promises of Jesus. That he will act in integrity regardless of what it will cost him. That's what's happening with John. He believes so deep inside of him that these realities, that Christ is the Savior is true, that he's willing to speak out in front of a leader when it will cost him his life. He believes He knows it's better to serve and follow Jesus than to compromise. Which we all have at times. We've all compromised in our life as disciples. Here's a great quote. How did John prepare for this? The courage to die for Christ begins long before the moment of martyrdom. That courage is born when you embrace Jesus' call to take up your cross and follow Him daily. It's a courage that grows as you wield God's Word. It's a courage refreshed by the Holy Spirit who daily empowers you to die to self, to pray for those who persecute you, and to even die like your Savior. If you want to know how to prepare for the trials and suffering of life that's going to come at you, to be ready for it, the preparation actually has to take place long before the trial ever comes. It's like we get ready and prepare knowing that life brings challenges, knowing that being a disciple may bring persecution. So when it comes, we say, there you are. 
I'm ready for you. I'm ready for you, trial. I'm ready for you, whatever it may be, because along the way we've been preparing. By sinking in God's Word, he says. By embracing Jesus. By growing in relationship to Him so that when the time comes, we're already ready. Already ready. John stood in that strong moment of tribulation because he'd already been living a life of embracing Jesus living for Jesus, taking up his, his own cross and following Jesus. Look at verse 17 in chapter 6. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he'd married her. He throws him in prison, Herod does, for standing for righteousness. For warning Herod, actually, for warning him, speaking the truth. It was, it was wrong to marry and steal his brother's wife. You would even say that's a good thing. Pretty much 99% of people would say that today too. That's a good thing. People would still say today, it's wrong to steal your brother's wife and marry her. And especially if she's your niece too. We would still say that today. But he throws them in prison and then we get this scene. It's like a scene out of some bachelor party at Herod's birthday party. His stepdaughter now is the one who comes and dances for them. So imagine this picture here. His stepdaughter Salome, after pleasing the crowd with probably some kind of erotic dance, gets a wish. The proud, brash Herod makes a promise he regrets, actually, the text says. To save face, he grants the request of Salome and his wife Herodias to bring out John the Baptist's head on a platter. And you see, uh, the daughter even takes another step. Mom says, I just want his head. Daughter comes along and says, we want it on a platter. We think, how could he do it? How could John, what would drive him to be so strong? How could he stand firm knowing by speaking the truth, he could, it could cost him his life? You know what Jesus' opinion of John is? He said in Luke, I tell you, Luke 7, 28, you see it popping up, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Jesus said those words about John the Baptist. And yet, John died in his early 30s. Didn't live very long. He only ministered for about one year. Uh, Never really did any recorded miracles. And yet Jesus calls him the greatest. Why? He stayed faithful. He stayed faithful on the road God led him on. Wasn't extraordinary? He stayed faithful. Just like he's calling you and I to. to be faithful. Just believe and follow. He stayed faithful on that road God would lead him on. The road Jesus would walk, many have called it the way of the cross. The way of the cross. You can look at John's story and say he failed. He failed. You could look at it and say that. He failed. He had one year of service and he was out. He was cut. His life was cut off. He didn't fail. And here's our final question. Do you believe, as you look at John's story, as you look at your own life, do you believe the way of the cross leads actually to victory? The way of suffering. The way of death. The way of loss, 
leads to victory. Following Jesus, whatever the cost, it's worth it. Do you believe that? Whether the road of suffering leads to the road of glory is another way to put it. Do we believe that? Here's some parallels. Just as John went out to preach and was handed over to be put in prison, Jesus too is going to be handed over and put in prison. Just as John was executed by a reluctant political leader, Jesus will be too by Pilate. Just as John was betrayed by a double-crossing individual, so will Jesus be betrayed by Judas. Just as John was violently killed, so will Jesus be. John's death gets us ready for Jesus. Is that a failure? No. It's an absolute stunning victory. In this moment where probably they were jeering and laughing and his head's brought in and Herod, really? That's like, we've never seen anything like this. That we would look at and say, what a failure. Or why was he so silly? He could have just, you know, kept his mouth shut. Is actually pointing us to Jesus' death. John's doing the very thing God called him to do. John was murdered. But was he silenced? No. John lost his head. You think of Herod and Herodias, they lost their soul. How many people wear the name John today? A lot. How many people wear the name Herod? (laughs) Not a lot. John's testimony lives. Death brings life. That's what the table points to. Death brings life. That's the definition of Christianity. Death brings life. Life. More than likely, Jesus will not ask us to die for him. But we are living in a time where the stigma is growing for those who carry Christ's name. Very obvious. Very clear. And maybe more than we actually realize, depending on what news sources you read. It's good to read other pieces too and get other opinions because you get a little clearer picture of the whole picture of what's going on out there. The stigma is growing for those who carry Christ's name. While there used to be some social capital with it, you know, some social capital, relational capital you could gain in your community just by attending church. Maybe it's an insurance salesman. I'll go to church, sure. I'll be seen as an upright standing citizen of my community. I'll get the networking from it. There was a good relational capital when you carried the name Jesus. That is gone. That is gone. And if it's not in some communities, it's slipping away. It actually is the other end of the spectrum now. There's a stigma now for carrying the name of Christ. In some ways, that's good. It's really bringing out and causing us to consider the cost to be a disciple. As this happens, we're going to continue to need to grow our theology of suffering. We have to. We have to continue to grow our theology of suffering in the church. He calls us on a road to sacrifice. These little daily deaths. It might not be your ultimate death, like John, but little daily deaths. So much so that Paul could say, I die every day. Here's how he describes it in 2 Corinthians. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Uh, Perplexed, but not driven to despair. 
persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that, so that the life of Jesus may be also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live, we're always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, again, the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We die daily, Paul says, in sacrifice. Whether it's the comforts of life, the sacrifice of time, of money, of prestige, the humble love of being misused by an enemy, offering forgiveness for the umpteenth time, or speaking up when it would be easier just to be quiet. These are the little deaths that Jesus asks us to make. So Paul says, so that his life will be clear. So that Jesus will be magnified. So that he will be known. The road to death leads to life. The road to death leads to glory. Here's the great news that what this table shows us. You have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose. You're saved by grace alone through Jesus, his death and resurrection. That's what it shows us. Death brings life. You have nothing to lose. Even if we do end up like John the Baptist, we will live again. We will live again. You have nothing to lose. So as we come to this table again, we come to the picture of death to life. That's what the table is. It's a bloody table. It's a, it's a deathly table, but it also is a table full of life because he resurrected from the grave. So take a minute. Ponder that again. As we think of ourselves as disciples on the journey on the road with Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ today, I ask you, as he has said, this is a, a meal for those that who call themselves disciples. So it doesn't make much sense if you haven't placed your trust in Christ yet. That's okay. We want to have that conversation with you. And I hope you do today. But let those elements pass by. Nobody's going to be looking down the aisle judging you. Nobody's going to be seeing who takes and who doesn't. But it's a meal for those who call him Lord and King and God. If you can do that today, this table is for you. But let's all take a moment. Just think about Christ as our risen Lord and Savior. Servers, you can come forward and prepare at this time too.